I would like to call attention once more to the words which are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the sixth chapter, verses 10 to 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. We come back once more to this most important and in many ways at the present time crucial statement by the Apostle here at the end of this great epistle to the Ephesians. And at the moment in particular, we are engaged upon a study and an investigation of what the Apostle describes here as the wiles of the devil. There is nothing more important for Christian people than that they should know something about this. Otherwise, we shall be defeated and brought into a state of misery and of bondage, and great harm may result to the whole life of the Christian church. Now, we have divided up this subject in this way. There are very clearly indicated in the New Testament and in the subsequent history of the Christian church certain general manifestations of the wiles of the devil. I mean by that, that he has exerted himself in such a way as to produce movements in the life of the church as a whole, which has brought much disaster and trouble. And then the second grouping is the wiles of the devil as manifested in a more personal manner in the life of the individual Christian. Now, both these aspects are of importance for us. Let nobody think that this first aspect is irrelevant for the individual Christian. I pause with that point for a moment for this reason, that it does seem to me that there is an increasing tendency today for people to think of the church as a whole, as being something that appertains only to church leaders, and that it has nothing to do with the individual Christian. The great leaders go around the world from conference to conference, and they decide what happens to the church. And the individual member tends to divorce himself from that and feel that that is not within his province at all. Now that, as the New Testament shows very clearly, is very wrong and very false. And it is particularly so in churches which do not have a hierarchical or episcopal system of church government. Ultimately, the power of decision is in the hands of the individual church members who express their views in their votes. So it may well be that the ignorance of the individual church member concerning these matters may be responsible ultimately for some serious error or heresy or even division in the ranks of the Christian church. No, we are meant to understand the doctrine of the church as a whole and we are to feel responsible for the state of the church as a whole, as well as for our individual position and situation. It's a very sad day in the life and history of the church 
when people atomize, as it were, the whole state of the church and come to God's house only concerned about themselves and their own personal moods and states and feelings and problems. We are responsible for the whole as well as for ourselves. The whole teaching of that twelfth chapter of First Corinthians, which we read just now, surely should bring us all to see the rightness of such an emphasis. Well now then, I say, we are looking at the moment at these general activities of the devil, uh, the ways in which he manifests and shows his wiles and his subtleties with regard to the church as a whole. We've already considered the question of heresies. And last Sunday morning, we considered the question of apostasy. And we did so in terms of the Roman Catholic Church. You will remember that the difference between those two things is this. Uh, a heresy is a kind of uh, doubt or a denial of uh, any defined uh, Christian doctrine. It doesn't involve the whole. It is some particular uh, error or doubt or difficulty. Whereas, whereas apostasy means uh, a general departure from the Christian faith and teaching. And we tried to show how uh, the Roman church is guilty of that in the ways that we indicated. Now we come this morning to another manifestation of this general activity of the devil. The wiles of the devil shown in yet another manner in the church as a whole. And uh, this is something which is clearly uh, described and indicated in the New Testament and which is seen very clearly in the subsequent history of the Christian church. I refer to the whole problem and question of schism. Now, this term schism means division. It means a tearing, a tearing apart. It means a rent make in a cloak or in a bit of material. That's the original, ultimate meaning of this word schism. Now, it's to be found in three places in the New Testament in particular, and they're all in that first epistle to the Corinthians, a portion of which we read at the beginning. Now, you notice that in the twelfth chapter which we read, you've got the actual word schism itself in the 25th verse. The apostle says that there should be no schism in the body but that the members should have the same care one for another. But exactly the same word was used by the apostle in two other places in that first epistle to the Corinthians, though it's translated by a different word in our translations. It's in the tenth verse of the first chapter. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, now, that should be that there be no schisms among you. It's exactly the same word as you've got there in chapter 12 in verse 25. And again, you've got another example of it in chapter 11 uh, and in verse 18. For first of all, says the apostle, when ye come together in the church, he's dealing here with the question of the communion. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you. It's the same word. It's the word schisms. 
I hear that there be schisms among you, and I partly believe it. Now, this is the, therefore the condition with which uh, we are going to deal. I can't help feeling that it's somehow significant that in the hymn which we have just been singing, a verse has been omitted, uh, which you will find in some of the older hymn books, and which is very much to the point. It reads like this, Though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. Now that's omitted. I can't help feeling, I say, that it's got some sort of significance. Why was that omitted? Well, I think the answer partly is what we were considering a fortnight ago, that people no longer tend to recognize heresies. And it's because of this loose thinking and the whole notion of heresies disliked because it involves discipline. And it's an age which hates discipline. It's an age of laxity and of looseness and of license. And it comes out, you see, even in the matter of selecting what stanzas you put into a hymn. However, there it is. That is what we are considering. Now, this, uh, as I've indicated, is a subject that is dealt with in the New Testament. That first epistle to the Corinthians was written almost entirely to deal with the question of schism. You remember it's one of those omnibus epistles. The apostle doesn't so much... Uh, sit down, as it were, to write or to dictate a letter giving instruction, as he does in the case of the epistle to the Romans. No, he's had a number of letters and of messengers from the church at Corinth. It was a church that was in great trouble, divided up in various ways, and the apostle writes in order to show them the wrongness of these divisions. It is the classical epistle on this whole subject of schism. And as I hope to show you, you will find it running as a theme through the entire epistle. But you will find it also in the other epistles. There are odd references to it, glances at it, almost in every one of the New Testament writings. So that it was a problem that arose at the very beginning in the life of the Christian church. Now, what does it mean? Well, it means a, a kind of division coming into the life of the Christian church, a division that should never be there, unnatural, wrong divisions in the life of the church. Let me put it to you like this. It is a state and condition of the church in which he no longer conforms to our Lord's Prayer, recorded in John 17, 21, where we read that he prayed that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Now, schism is the exact opposite of that. It is a state in which the church is wrongly divided. The opposite of John 17:21, A state in which you've got factions, groups, and divisions in the body of the Christian church. Now I'm most anxious to make it clear that this is a, a vital subject for all of us. You can't understand your New Testament properly if you don't understand this doctrine. As I say, it's explicit in 1 Corinthians, it's implicit in almost every epistle. 
So, in order to understand the New Testament, we must know something about this. And when you come to the subsequent history of the Christian church, well, you won't begin to understand it if you don't know exactly what is meant by schism. The history of the church, alas, is full of this very thing that we are looking at. And if you lacked any other reason, the one given by our Lord in that great high priestly prayer of his surely should be enough. Why should we be concerned about this? For this reason. The world outside, he says, is looking on. That's why he prays that they all may be one, even as he and the Father are one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me. The world is looking on at the Christian church, and there can be no question at all, but that schisms and divisions do constitute an obstacle and a hindrance to those who are outside from believing and submitting themselves to the Christian faith and the Christian teaching. Very well, then. I say this should be an urgent metaphor at all. We see the world, we see the majority outside the church in this country. Therefore, this is a matter, I say, that should be at the center of all our thinking. Well, now then, let's look at it. Here, again, we see the extreme subtlety and wiliness of the devil. Nowhere, perhaps, is his subtle art and artistry and artfulness shown so clearly as in the way in which he drives us as Christian people to overcorrection and to extremes. Now let me show you what I mean. Take, for instance, the relationship of this matter of schism to what we've been considering on the two previous Sundays, heresy, apostasy, as shown in the Roman Catholic Church or in any other form. Now, I want to show you the extreme subtlety and wiliness of the devil. This is how it works. Fortnight ago, we were here considering the danger of heresy. We were showing the terrible danger of this attitude that is so common today, an attitude of what we may call indifferentism, by which we mean this, this popular ecumenical teaching so-called, which rarely says, doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you're a Christian, as long as you're standing against communism, as long as you somehow believe in God, doesn't matter what you believe. You mustn't be particular about these doctrines. Now, we were showing the danger of all that, how that leads of necessity to heresy. If you, can't, uh, if you have no standard, you can't judge anything to be wrong. You'll never know where you are. And, well, everything will be all right, and on you go. There, there is nothing more dangerous than that. And we spend time in showing it. Then last Sunday, in exactly the same way, we were looking at apostasy, and we saw that there is nothing more important than for us to denounce apostasy and to separate ourselves from it. Very well. The thing was clear. There were the pictures, and we saw it so clearly. Now then, the devil comes in at that point. He says, perfectly right. Heresy is something terrible, and you must separate yourself from it. Apostasy is worse. You must get as far away from apostasy as you possibly can. You're quite right, says the devil. This can never be overemphasized. You can never be too careful and punctilious about all this. And he presses it and he presses it and he presses it until we've gone so far away from heresy and from apostasy that we begin to divide when we shouldn't divide. 
and separate when we shouldn't separate. Now, that is what is meant by schism. Now, this is the problem, therefore, I say for us today. You see, in the Christian life, you are always, as someone has well put it, all walking, as it were, on a knife edge. There's a great chasm there, there's another one here. And the Christian is a man who has always got to avoid certain extremes. And this is the task for the Christian, and especially at the present time. How are we to draw the line between allowing heresy and apostasy on the one hand, being guilty of schism on the other hand? Now, those who belong to the Roman Catholic Church say that all of us who are Protestants are schismatics and that we are guilty of schism. That's what the Roman Church says about us this morning. We are guilty, they say, of schism. That is because we are not still in the Roman Church. How do we demonstrate to them that we are not guilty of schism, but that it is they who are guilty of apostasy? That's the problem. And it's exactly the same, I say, with this whole modern tendency to have one great world church. Believe what you like. Don't be too particular about these definitions of faith and of doctrine. How do we walk this on this narrow ledge between that and, on the other hand, being guilty of schism? Or let me put it to you like this. There's a very uh, good statement concerning all this matter in the second epistle of John in verse 10. John says there, If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. John is saying quite explicitly that there were certain false teachers in the early church who were not preaching the true doctrine of Christ. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If, therefore, there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God speed. Now, there's one side, isn't it? We are not to have fellowship with these people who don't hold the true doctrine. There it is quite explicitly. It's in many other places in the New Testament. A man who's not clear about the doctrine of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is a man who's to be avoided. We are not to receive him into our church, into our house. We are not to bid him Godspeed. It's wrong to do so. There's one side. Yes, but you see, in your desire to do that and to be right at that point, the devil will come and will drive you so far to the other extreme that you become guilty of the sin of schism. And remember, the sin of schism is condemned in the New Testament quite as much as is the sin of heresy or of apostasy. It is a terrible sin. And therefore, we have to discover the position between these two things. And that is the task that is before us this morning. When is it right to separate? When is it wrong to separate? Now, if we don't recognize the two things, we're already in a false position. The only way to answer this question is to consider the New Testament teaching concerning this whole matter of schism. I do want to keep you to keep in your minds this whole question of the wiles of the devil. And especially perhaps those who rejoiced most of all last Sunday morning and the previous Sunday morning. Now, this is your morning. 
those who denounce the Roman Catholic Church and those who denounce the ecumenical movement and so on. Now then, this is for you. It is you especially that the devil is likely to attack with all his wiles and subtlety because of the clarity of your understanding concerning the two previous doctrines. You are the very person that he'll take and he'll drive you so far in that direction that you will have fallen into the sin of schism. Very well then, how do we define schism? I suggest a division like this. Schism is division without an adequate cause. Or if you like, schism is division for most inadequate reasons. Very well, now let's look at it like this. I suggest that the classical statement about this is really that John 17.21 that I've already read you. I know of no verse at the present time that is so misunderstood, so utterly abused and misused as John 17.21. Listen to it. That they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Now, how is that verse being interpreted today? Well, you're familiar. This is the interpretation. Here we are, they say, that's what our Lord prayed for. And that is the greatest need today. They say the greatest sin in the world today is a disunited church. There's the enemy, there's the world looking on. And she sees a divided church. They say there's only one thing for us to do. We must all come together. We must unite at all costs. They say our Lord prayed for that, that they all might be one. They say, why are you holding on to this particular doctrine? Why do you say that a man must believe in the virgin birth? Why must he believe in the miracles of our Lord? Why must he believe in the substitutionary atonement? Why must he believe in the literal physical resurrection? Why must he believe in the person of the Holy Spirit? Why? With things as they are. Surely, our Lord says that they all may be one. Any man who calls himself a Christian, we must be one that the world may know that God has sent him. Now, that's the interpretation that's being given, isn't it? But you see, it's entirely false. That isn't what our Lord is saying there at all. What he is saying is this. He is praying that his followers may be kept from the sin of schism. What's that? It's this. These disciples for whom our Lord was praying all believed exactly the same things. There was no disagreement on doctrine amongst the apostles for whom Christ was praying. He's already said that. He has in his prayer reminded his father that these were the men who had believed his teaching. He says, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were and thou gavest them me and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me and they have received them and have known surely that I came out from thee and they have believed that thou didst send me. These were men who were absolutely agreed about all the doctrines. There was no trouble there. They were doctrinally one. What is he praying for? Well, what he's praying for is this. 
that nothing may come in and separate and divide these men from one another who are absolutely agreed about the truth and the doctrines. You see, it is the very reverse of the use that is being made at the present time of John 17:21. Our Lord was not praying that they all might hang together, though they might disagree about cardinal doctrines. No, no. What he's saying is this. Oh, I pray that these men who are agreed about cardinal doctrines may never separate for any other reason. You see, it's the exact opposite. Our Lord was not making a great plea for ecumenicity. He was praying that the disciples may be saved from schism. Very well. There, I say, is the key to the understanding of all this matter. If you like a further one, we've already had it in this great epistle to the Ephesians. Take the fourth chapter. Here is the apostle saying at the beginning, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, there are foolish people at the present time who interpret that in the wrong way. Ah, you see, they say, Paul doesn't teach there that we should all believe the same thing. He's concerned about the unity of the Spirit. Let's all get together. Let's work together. And then, as we work together and exercise this loving Christian spirit, perhaps we'll draw a little bit nearer together in our doctrines and in what we believe. That's the use, isn't it? Now, the apostle says the exact opposite. You see, the apostle in the first three chapters has been laying down the cardinal doctrines. And they're all agreed about these. What is he saying then? Well, he says, I pray that you all may be kept there in that unity with all lowliness and meekness. You see, the danger is not so much that they'll go wrong with their doctrine there, but that they'll go wrong in the matter of pride or self-esteem. He prays they may be kept low and meek, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, not on matters of doctrine, but on, as we shall see, on matters of personality and a thousand and one other things. He says endeavoring not to form a unity, but to keep the unity, to safeguard it, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he says, there is, of course, only one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. So again, what the apostle is concerned about is that not that people may vaguely and loosely come together, some believing in the virgin birth and some not, some believing in the substitutionary atonement and others regarding it just as a manifestation of love. No, no. He is praying that men who are agreed and who are one in doctrine may be kept like that and not allow anything to separate them or to divide them. It is again, I say, a warning against the terrible danger of schism. Very well then, realizing that this is the controlling principle, let me now give you some practical individual illustrations of how one may fall into this sin of schism. What are the matters concerning which it is wrong to divide? Well, let us look at them as they're given us in the New Testament. First, it's very wrong to divide over persons and over personalities. Here it is, of course, in its classical statement 
in the first chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians. I beseech you, brethren, I'm reading at verse 10 again, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no schisms among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Why does he say that? Here's the answer. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. What were they contending about? The person of Christ? The meaning of the death of Christ? Not at all. There are contentions among you. About what? Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul. Another says, I am of Apollos. And another says, I am of Cephas. And another, I am of Christ. They were dividing and separating about persons. There was no disagreement about the cardinal central doctrines. That wasn't the trouble in Corinth. The trouble was over these persons. Some people said, Paul is the man. That's the preacher I like. There's nobody like him and so on. Oh, said you, that nonsense. Haven't you heard Apollos? Why, Paul. May have been a clever man, but he was a very poor speaker. In any case, he was nothing to look at. His presence was weak and his speech contemptible. Nonsense, they said. Apollos was the man. Handsome fellow, didn't you hear him? And learned in the scriptures, eloquent, moving, mighty. Well, I'm very glad that you're laughing because you're laughing at yourselves. That's precisely what people are still doing in the Christian church. It's most interesting. Paul and Apollos and Cephas and Christ. Now that's a perfect illustration of what is meant by schism. Here were men who were believing in the same Lord, dividing the church because of a carnal, unhealthy interest in persons and in personalities. And the apostle therefore puts it like this. He says, what on earth are you doing? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? That's schism. People who are agreed about the doctrine and about the truth. Worshipping the same Christ. Dividing the church, the body of Christ, over this unhealthy interest in persons and personalities. The Apostle Paul was able to say that he wasn't responsible for this. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius. He never set out to form a party. He came in humility and in meekness, weakness, fear, and much trembling. He didn't set himself up. And any man who does that and tries to get a personal following is inciting people to the sin of schism. It's a terrible sin. This modern cult of personality, it, it's the higher road to schism. How careful the apostle was to avoid it and to give no suspicion that in any way he was guilty of leading people into that he didn't want personal followers. No, no. But there it is. You see, the moment you divide in the Christian church over things like that, you are already guilty of schism. Take another one. I would put secondly what we may well call carnality. What I mean by that is, of course, that we allow the flesh to come into these matters. Not in exactly the same way as I've been considering, but in another way. Take, for instance, that great 
and the important incident in this respect, which is recorded at the end of the 15th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. I begin to read at verse 36. And some days after, Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. Excellent, wasn't it? And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed unto Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. Now there's another perfect instance of schism. Paul and Barnabas absolutely agreed about the doctrines. No division at all. No question, no trouble whatsoever. And yet they separate, they part from one another. What was it due to? It was over the question of this man, John Mark. Barnabas wanted to take him with them. Paul said no. Why not? Well, Paul said no for this reason, that they'd taken John Mark with them before, but that he'd deserted them. He'd left them. When they needed him very much, he'd gone back. So Paul said, well, I think it's wrong to take a man like this. He's failed, he's proved himself unreliable. Silas, on the other end, is a good man. Let's take him. Now, Paul was arguing on facts. Nevertheless, Barnabas wouldn't give in. He was insisting upon taking John Mark with him. Why? Well, you know, there's only one answer. John Mark happened to be Barnabas' nephew. And because he was a blood relation, he stands out and the church is divided. That's schism. Carnality. The flesh coming in. Oh, how often has it happened? You see this in the Christian church and in a story so frequently, a man's called of God to do a work, then he's got a son. The son has not been called to do the work, and he hasn't the ability very often. But because he's a son, he's worked in, the position is so arranged that he must follow. A much better man is there present and could do the work. No, no, because he's the son of his father. That's sure carnality. And to cause division in the Christian church on those grounds is to be guilty of schism. You've got the same thing in embryo, as it were, in Philippians 1. There were people in the church who were very jealous of the Apostle Paul, rejoicing that he was in prison, preaching Christ of envy. That's the same thing. It often ends in this same disastrous position. Well, think of many other examples and illustrations for yourself. I've known churches divided purely for familial reasons. Old family feuds have often divided the Christian church and wrought terrible havoc. See, it's nothing to do with the doctrine at all. It's dividing on other grounds amongst people who are agreed about the doctrine. Let me give you a third. It really is, it's in a sense, a part of this carnality, but I think it deserves a heading for itself. The desire to have the preeminence, masterfulness, the desire to be a leader and to be a dictator in the church. There's a classical illustration of this. James and John, you remember, sent their mother to ask our Lord, should these two sons of hers be seated when he was in his glory in his kingdom, one on his right hand, one on the left hand? And of course it created division. We are told the other disciples were very annoyed with the two brothers, and rightly so. You see, the desire for preeminence, the desire to be important, to have a big place, to cut a big figure, is absolutely fatal. 
They said, let us be put one on the right, one on the left. No, no doctrinal disagreement, but dividing in terms, again, of the desire for greatness and for importance. You read the story of the church, keep your eyes open. This thing is happening and has happened constantly. It's schism. This devilish pride coming out in people. There's uh, perhaps the best uh, statement of all concerning this, this time in the third epistle of John where we've got a very good statement concerning it, concerning that man, uh, Diotrephes, who is mentioned there by the apostle. Listen, uh, verse 9, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. This man was causing division in the church, simply and solely because he wanted to be important and to have preeminence. But, you know, it happens in all sorts of ways. Listen to Philippians 4, verse 2. I beseech Euodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And then he goes on, and I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel with Clement also. Now, what was happening? Well, here it was. Here were two excellent women in the church at Philippi, Euodius and Syntyche. They'd been a great help to the apostle when he was there. There was no difference amongst them as regards doctrine at all. Well, what was the trouble? Well, it was personalities again. We don't know which of them was to be blamed. Perhaps both of them were to be blamed. Euodius wanted to be the leading woman, so did Syntyche. And they were each pressing their claims, forming groups around them, and factions. They were the leaders. Importance, preeminence. What a devilish thing it is. The devil fell because of the same desire, you remember. We saw that. He lifted himself up. It was his pride, his desire to be as great as God, to be above all of... There it is. And it comes out in... And that is schism. Nothing to do with doctrine, but just a desire to be great and self-important. And dividing the church on that. Another cause of division, number four, is social status. There is no doubt at all that in 1 Corinthians 11, the apostle is dealing with that quite, quite specifically. Now we are going to come to the communion table. And the apostle deals with it there. Listen, this is, that's how he puts it. He says, Now in this I declare that unto you that I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be schisms among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper. One is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? I Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. You see, what was happening was this. The rich and the poor. The rich had too much, were eating and drinking too much, the others hadn't sufficient. And they were abusing even the Lord's table and the love feasts which they had in connection with it because of this division amongst the rich and the poor, the, those who had too much and those who didn't have enough. So the apostle, you see, in coming to his great doctrine, he's already mentioned it to them actually in chapter 10. He says, you know, you haven't understood this at all. Listen, says the apostle in verses 16 and 17 in chapter 10. The cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion? Communion. We're all one together. It is a communion. 
Some kind of community, a communal spirit. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread. He said you must learn to think of yourselves like a loaf. Don't think of yourselves as a collection of people. A loaf is not a mere collection of molecules. A loaf is one. You're one bread, one loaf. We, he says, though we are many people, we are one bread, one loaf, and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. And that is the answer. That there are to be no divisions and distinctions recognized in the Christian church. It doesn't matter whether you're wealthy or poor, whether you're clever or whether you're lacking in ability, whether you're learned or ignorant. When you come here, you're one. As the body is one, as the loaf is one. No, no, there must be no other divisions introduced here. James, of course, had to take up the same point, you remember. He puts it there in his, in the second chapter of his epistle. Let me just read a verse or two to you. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there. Or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves and have become judges of evil thoughts? And on he goes. Now there is another case of schism. Division amongst people who confess that they're all sinners and lost and damned and who believe in the same Lord and in his blood, dividing up according to their natural birth, their pedigree. The amount of money or the size of the house in which they were brought up. The school they went to, the college they went to. Dividing the Christian church over things like that. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. That's schism. Another cause of division, number five, gifts and understanding. I needn't keep you with this. It's all expanded perfectly in that twelfth chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians. There they were dividing up the church because of the nature of their gifts. Some of the head, some of the feet, some of the eyes, some of the hands, and so on. And they were priding themselves or suffering and feeling a sense of grudge because they hadn't got the other gift. And the church was divided, torn asunder, guilty of schism over this question of spiritual gifts. You haven't spoken with tongues. You haven't done this or that. I have. And the church is divided. And the apostle says there that if you divide on any one of these accounts, you are guilty of schism. All are necessary. And it is the spirit who decides how he dispenses his gifts, whether he gives any or none, and what particular gifts he may chance to give. Of course, you've got the same thing really in the eighth chapter of that first epistle to the Corinthians, where they were dividing over their knowledge and understanding about meats offered to idols. You've got the same thing in Galatians 6. Now, says Paul, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Don't despise your weak brother. It's in Romans 14.1 and Romans 15.1. Same thing again, the weaker brother. You mustn't divide on these things. And it's there again in the epistle to the Colossians. The Colossian heresy was, in a sense, this incipient Gnosticism, this pride of knowledge, this mystical experience, this understanding, 
this esoteric thing that they claimed to have. They were dividing the church on that. That's equally bad. I go on to a sixth heading, which is a dividing of rites and ceremonies. Again, you'll find a kind of reference to that in that same epistle to the Colossians. And it's there raising its head in other places in other epistles also. Well, these are some of them. And I end this morning with this one. Bigotry. Now, what is bigotry? Well, it's a very important term, and it's very vital that we should be clear about it. Bigotry is ultimately a matter of a man's spirit. Bigotry is ultimately due to a man failing to discipline himself. To be a bigot means that you are obstinate in what you believe. Now, the bigot, of course, believes something, yes, but why do you call him a bigot? What is it that constitutes the very essence of bigotry? It's this. That a man holds on to this particular thing in a blind, unreasoning, and obstinate manner. That he won't listen to argument, he won't listen to anything. I say this, I believe this, and he'll wreck a church, he'll divide anything or everything. Because of... Now, it's, it's a psychological condition. The trouble with the poor bigot is that he doesn't realize that. He thinks he's contending for the faith. But he isn't. He is a man who lacks balance, he lacks discipline, he doesn't know how to control his own spirit. The bigot is a man, of course, whom we should feel very sorry for. He's a man to be pitied. Because he is not aware of what is happening to him. And I believe that ultimately the ultimate cause of all bigotry is a spirit of fear. You see, he's so afraid of being a heretic. He's so afraid of being an apostate. And, and he's so obsessed by that and by this spirit of fear that he goes right over. And there he stands. You can't reason with him. He just says it. And his eyes blaze. And he doesn't know what to... He stands with obstinacy, utterly unreasoning. He doesn't stop to consider whether the matter is sufficiently important to divide. No, no. He just stands and he's obsessed by... It's a form of obsession. It is ultimately, therefore, a defect of character. It's a psychological condition. It is a failure to exercise restraint and self-discipline. It is to be governed by a spirit of fear instead of the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Well, we've got to leave it at that, I see, for this morning. I haven't quite finished this subject. God willing, I'll go on to consider yet another aspect of this whole danger and problem of schism next Sunday morning. But we've seen enough, I trust, to make us all see what a terrible, what a horrible, what a foul thing schism is. God preserve us from it. And he can, he will. He tells us that we can be clothed and filled with the power of his might. And if we but take unto us the whole armor of God, we shall be ready, we shall be prepared, we shall see it even beginning to raise its head and we shall conquer it and defeat it before it has conquered and engulfed us. Amen.